if, if a man is in the forest alone and he says something and no one can hear him, is he still wrong? Where's your post-it If a man wears a black suit in the forest. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, welcome to Trade Secrets. Uh, uh, excited to have you back. Hopefully, you will give us a like or a heart or however you follow, favorite things to follow on YouTube or Spotify or Apple. Um, we really appreciate you out there listening. And we've got some exciting things in store today. Uh, the topic of the day is receiverships. But before we get into that, uh, we're going to start off with a couple curveballs. First one is there is something. Uh, in the set that's different and anybody or the first person I say not anybody the first person who responds either to Kelsey or on YouTube and tells us what's different in the screen is going to get a free bottle of this guy um, one that will be full not <laughs> you get four ounces of uh, yeah. half drank bottle of Buffalo Trace not the four ounce version but Buffalo Trace for sure uh, but you got to tell us what is different in the scene today and then we're celebrating somebody's no <laughs> yes you got oh my god somebody's yeah. birthday today birthday to you oh we gotta light it happy birthday to you oh happy birthday dear Paige happy birthday to you Thanks, guys. I appreciate you. <laughs> I am very carrot caked out, but thank you. That's lovely. Wow, you handled that way better than I expected. <laughs> the second you said curveballs, I knew that I was going to be in the spotlight for a for a minute. There. For a hot second. Yeah. Well, happy but birthday. I appreciate it. It's happy not a birthday. sombrero in a Mexican restaurant, so I'm fine. Yeah. That comes later. Nope. Yeah. So. No, happy birthday. Thanks. We're excited to celebrate. And like I said, we're going to talk about receiverships over a bottle of Iron Smoke Bourbon, which we'll get into in a little bit. But uh, yeah, receiverships and commercial real estate. Um, it is going to be a topic, maybe a hot topic here over the next few months. There's a lot of looming uh, foreclosures and or commercial loan defaults that's like the headline in the wall street journal and you know the loan default itself from my perspective anyway isn't really anything that causes concern to the tenant but um the receivership process that maybe ensues potentially has some challenges so figured we'd dig into that topic and just for a little bit of background it actually is the best cold calling letter slash topic I've ever used in my career. One of our really dear clients started, you know, 15 years ago because of a receivership letter trying to explain what you're up against. So mm -hmm. it's a topic that's near and dear to the success of cold calling in my personal career. And so. it was a receivership, not a bankruptcy, correct? Correct. Yeah. A portfolio of buildings in Cleveland was owned by the King Group and they defaulted on their loan. Seven buildings, if my memory is any good. Fifteen years ago is quite some time. But um, we proceeded to send a letter to every single tenant in those 15 buildings asking them 
basically two simple questions. Have you ever heard of receivership and do you know what it means to you? If you don't, call us. And they did, shockingly. I think we got four or five phone calls out of it, which for those of you out there pounding the phones know that that is a win. Um, And one of them turned out to be what now has been a you know 15-year friend and client and all started because of the topic of what's a receivership so so what is a receivership mr castle you want to dig in okay a receivership is i'm going to call it a, a an off-ramp or a parallel path to a bankruptcy a bankruptcy is they're not mutually exclusive for sure they, they they're kind of alike but they're not the same um there's a commercial about that someplace. But a receivership is initiated by the creditor, okay? And it's to protect the In layman's terms, though, what's the creditor? The, let's just say the bank in this, in this case. But yeah, it so could the also bank be, owns a, a commercial real estate building, like the building that we're in, for example, is well, the bank, teetering on this the, experience. The bank has a piece of debt against mm-hmm. it. And what they're doing is they're protecting their asset prior to going into bankruptcy. Now, this is it, it gets really convoluted because I don't know uh, the, the, the protections of, of what you get are completely nuanced. But basically, this is a, a method of trying not to go to bankruptcy because bankruptcy is the, you've pushed the snowball over the hill. It is going downhill after that. This is an attempt to try to work things out. And it's initiated by the lender. And the lender basically petitions the court to appoint a receiver um, to operate the borrower's business. I think that's the key fact, that it's an appointed person who now is in charge of the asset. He is in charge of the asset. Whether it's one building or ten buildings. Okay, he is under the supervision of a court. He has to act as a fiduciary to um, the the person who appointed him, I believe. The creditor. And the court. And the court, but not the borrower. Yeah, not to the owner of the building. To my understanding. So basically, he operates the asset, whether it's a business, whether it's a piece of real estate, whatever it happens to be, to try to upright it. And he has a lot of powers. He can do all sorts of things. He could could enter into new leases. He could... um, I don't believe he, he cannot modify existing leases. Yeah, that's one okay. of the things we're going to get into. For the, sure. the lease he could is, also be a woman. Well, yes. My yes, I use, I use, I use the, a, I, I'm a, yes. In a non-descriptive way. My, my pronouns are, what an asshole. <laughs> um, so it, She gets a birthday cake. So she I get, she that's right, it's her birthday <laughs> cake, so she gets to toss uh cake at me by the end of the show so i think we eat this cake (laughs) the throwing cakes elsewhere (laughs) but it's a it's very nuanced but when something like this happens you absolutely have to consult your legal counsel and you absolutely should consult your real estate counsel because there's a lot of the tenant should the tenant should because there's a lot of moving parts to it and And i would say most often when a receiver gets appointed the tenant's not maybe most often, that the receivership doesn't guarantee that the tenant even knows that it happened. I mean, in the case of the King Group situation, none of the tenants knew because it's not a, it's not a situation by where the, by way the tenants need to have been given notice. Or the, the notice that they might have been given was an estoppel, which we can talk about, but most people don't even realize that the estoppel was caused by a receivership. So it's a, 
it's a really nuanced thing as the tenant. Right, and I, I think downstream of that, you would have found out because there would have been a new notice ad- address as to where to send all um, all of your rents, you know, any uh, building issues or anything like that. And that the one of the problems is that within you get into it, the tenancy issue is that sometimes one of the things that people do to save or cut down on expenses is to stop providing services. Right. Uh, and that can really affect the tenant's operation within any particular place like that. And uh, it, it's from the landlord's perspective, for the owner's perspective, they should also have some serious counsel regarding this because it's they are losing operational control of their asset. But they still have the liability of the debt. Absolutely. So and they're no longer making the decisions, but they are completely on the hook for the exposure. Yeah, and this is the have your cake and eat it too from the perspective of the lender. Because the last thing the lender wants to do is initiate the bankruptcy because they end up with an asset that they become responsible for, which is what they don't want to have happen. Right. Okay. So I have a lot of questions. Okay. The first one is on a CMBS-backed, like CMBS-backed debt. Commercial mortgage-backed security. So... Hmm? So that's where if just there's a to, CMBS loan yeah, on our uh, let's pause right development. there. So borrower, owner of building gets debt. That debt then gets sold off into what's called a commercial mortgage backed security, which is a huge pool of other like kind debt. And now you're no longer dealing with owner or lender, you're dealing with a buyer of debt. Um, which is a loose way of explaining CMBS debt. Sure. So if a CMBS backed development yep. goes into financial distress. Correct. Who appoints the receiver? Um the, okay, a receiver under a, a, a situation like that the entire piece of the security would have to be defaulted, I believe. No, so what happens is the the CMBS appoints what's called a master, well, a special servicer. So CMBS debt is a big pool of debt. They put somebody in charge who's a master servicer who basically is the third party who collects all the rents, makes sure everything's going okay. When things aren't going okay, to your point, and it starts to go into financial distress, then they get appointed a special servicer. And... The special servicer typically is within the actual lending institution. Or a third party that they control. Right. The master, I believe, would be the third party. Yeah. Was the CMBS scenario one of those ones that we probably shouldn't have ventured into? No, it's (laughs) the one that's probably the most complicated because the special servicer and the receiver are similar in nature enough that it is a little... You know, confusing. Yeah. So receivership But same concept. Generally. Special servicer now takes control of said asset and is in charge of all things. May or may not appoint a actual receiver, but the concept of receivership has happened because there's somebody else now in control of the building whose only objective is to maximize the likely return on the debt holders. Um to, so, pr- to, protect to protect their, the debt holder. Yeah. And it, you get a kind of default for a, a mortgage has all sorts of moving parts, too. You could be paying your mortgage 
and your property can go into default. And we're about to see a number of these things because within the mortgage, you have to have certain you know, ratios and, and limits. There has to be a debt coverage ratio. There has to be a loan-to-value ratio. And now with you have diminishing values, okay, and not enough cash flow to cover them, you could be in default, but you're paying, uh, you're, you're paying your note. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these times, this is the bank's way of saying nicely, I'm going to default on you, roll out of this loan, refinance this someplace else. If it's a good partner to lender, I meaning the good partner lender, to Michael's point, you could be totally current, just like if this is your home mortgage. Mm -hmm. You could be paying your home mortgage. You have every right to stay in your home. Um, but there could be an outcome that's happening in the universe that you have no control over that puts you in default. And your lender, if they're a good partner, will say, hey, I put you in default because it protects my rights. Um, but what I really want you to do is just go refinance this. And if you go refinance it, then it's, you know, no harm, no foul. If you have a bad lender partner, um, and we won't name names, but there's definitely some banks out there who are notorious for being good lender partners or bad lender partners, they would put you in default and say, no, we're actually going to call your loan and you need to figure it out and figure it out instantly, which you know, effectively creates a business opportunity for the likes of Scott and others who have a lot of liquidity and can yeah. step in and solve messy problems. And, and there, there's a process that has to be followed there, and there's, it's typically time deltas. When you go into, they notify you, you're going into special assets, which sounds really nice, but it's really bad. It's the opposite okay, of special. Okay, you, you don't feel special <laughs> after these things. It's, uh, okay, so they say you're going into special assets, and then it, they just continue to add all these layers of responsibilities to you. And in many cases, they have the opportunity to increase your interest rates, which can crucify you. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing to go through. So receivership is, is essentially like turnaround management for real estate. So if a business is failing, they can bring in turnaround management to try to keep it from bankruptcy, to slipping into bankruptcy. Receivership is kind of like what the equivalent of that in a real estate situation yeah i mean that's a good way of looking at it and i think one of the frustrating things is the receiver is really incentivized like if you're talking about how people get incentivized the receiver itself even if they're the best human in the world you know male female it doesn't matter um the Reality is they're incentivized to keep it in receivership for as long as possible because they get paid a fee mm -hmm. based on the fact that they're in control of the property and they are the receiver. And they don't get a success fee if they successfully pull it out of that. I think that there are cases where there is a success fee, but it is typically by way of they also have a real estate uh, brokerage company that gets the disposition fee or something like that. But make no mistake about it, while it's in receivership, the fees that they're charging are uh, beneficial to the receiver and to the receiver only. Yeah, and keep in mind that the receiver is appointed by the court. So they're, okay, so they're rather receiver, appointed by the court or the bank. A receiver receivership really is just to stabilize the asset. It's not to turn around and revert it to the previous owner then really. It's just to stabilize the asset, to minimize the losses to the creditor 
or to, to try to make the creditor as whole as possible with a disposition. So they stabilize it in order to be able to sell it at or above the outstanding debt to the creditor. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great question. I'd love to fact check that. We won't get it done here on this call or on this podcast, but how many times it actually reverts back to the original owner? I bet it's a very, very low percentage. It's not impossible, but it's definitely a low percentage. It is so not. So it's usually just stabilize and then sell it off. And stabilize and, and or improve or value by making better decisions. I mean, if the owner of the building not the lender, but the owner is just a bad manager or a bad business person and is making you know decisions that decrease value or anger tenants or whatever the case might be, the receiver might step in and actually say like, oh, if we would have done these three things differently, now all of a sudden this building's making money and we're in a much better place. Yeah, whereas uh, it's interesting in the current climate where there's speculation of office buildings that will or already are falling into receivership, like special special servicing receivership. But there's, it's not necessarily just bad management. It's a whole host of environmental conditions, we'll call them, that make it very difficult to lease up these assets. Specifically, you hear it all the time, like the CBD office towers. So how does that, how does that play out? I mean... Will everything just be in like receivership forever? It can, because it if can you go can't, on for if it, an extended like at what point in time. time, if it goes into receivership and a receiver is not able to improve the value of the asset, then what happens? Then the bank just comes to own it. It goes. The bank could come to own it. And okay, then the, the bank uh, just owns a bunch of vacant or nearly court vacant could step assets. In. And the court could step in and say this is going nowhere. Um, the owner of the property could f go file for bankruptcy and the protections associated with that. Um, there's, there's a number of different avenues that could occur, but that's, that could easily have happened. And, you know, when we're talking about this, everything that we think that is about to be, let's just call it distressed property, you have all sorts of moving parts there. You have uh, people starting to work from home. You have less occupancy. You have uh, higher cost of operation, higher taxes, higher interest rates. You have loans that are rolling. You have banks in their portfolio that want to get rid of their real estate assets, specifically CBD properties. Um, so there's a lot of external factors that kind of cause this. And that mortgage document that you have that has all these little if this happens, we can do this. If this happens, we can do this. If this happens, we can do this. And that's where you start getting a lot of these defaults. And the defaults build on one another because it's not the only guy that would default. Right. And I, you know, obviously I think we could go down a bunch of different rabbit holes as the borrower and or the creditor or the landlord. But I think, you know, to bring it back to where we started, which was how does this impact the tenant? You know, the tenant usually doesn't even know most of this is going on until it comes time to renew their lease or there's something broken and they need it fixed. The services of the building become non-existent. I was in a building a year and a half ago, two years ago, that was on, in receivership talking to a tenant who wasn't sure if they wanted to renew their lease or go somewhere else. And I had to wait five minutes to get an elevator up to their floor. And then once I got in their office, we had our meeting. 
we were le- I was leaving and they said, oh, you might just want to take the stairs. They're like, the only one of the elevators works. And this is a massive office tower mm-hmm. with eight, 12. eight or 12. Ten, el- uh, 10, 12 elevators. Yeah, I think 12. A lot, of, and only... Maybe then it wasn't one, but it was basically like 20% of the elevators in the building were working. Um, and they said that they have repeatedly gotten stuck in the two that do, or the however many that did. So their staff had been taking the stairs up and down from like the fifth or the seventh floor. Yeah, imagine if you're on the 30th or 80th right. or 100th floor of a high rise right. in Manhattan or Chicago. or Yeah. Yeah. And they they just thought it was bad man they i don't think they even knew that the property was in receivership they thought that it was just being neglected right because it was downtown in the midst of covid well you know if you're not paying the lender there's a fairly decent chance there's a number of other vendors you're not paying also yeah and after the elevator guy's pretty high up on the list of the first to get (laughs) (laughs) well they typically bill quarterly so well you know they just could be caught up and you know they'll carry you for x period of time but then they'll just they'll cut you off from service yeah and i mean it's an interesting the elevator kind of rabbit hole um it doesn't even necessarily need to be receivership or a lender issue if you own a building and you want all the tenants to leave the fastest way to make them disgruntled is make the elevator stop working Mm -hmm. we worked on a project in Cleveland at one point where we had a tenant who thought that being the last tenant left in a building that was for surely going to become residential would give them the most amount of leverage possible. And boy, did they learn the hard way that being the last tenant left in a 25-story building is a really uncomfortable experience because um, (laughs) the landlord can make your life really, really, really uncomfortable. Um, and receivers, like, just to make sure we're drawing lines in the sand between the two of those stories, um, the receiver typically is not trying to make the tenant's life miserable. They're usually trying to solve a situation rather than create one. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes their hands are tied because they only have so many dollars and they got to pick where the dollars go. Yeah, and the, it's the receiver acts on behalf of the creditor. So at some point in time, the creditor is not going to give any more money so if if you're a tenant in a building that goes into receivership but your lease isn't coming up for immediate renewal is this a scenario that would likely impact other than obviously like certain services falling by the wayside but you're locked in for call it another five years what leverage do you have as a tenant with a lot of term left if your building falls into receivership or do you just kind of have to deal with that until Hopefully, they get more tenants in and solve their problem. <laughs> um, that's a great question. I think the answer is even worse than that. Yeah. Because you are, a lease is an interest in time, so you're there. You've committed to that. And as a receiver acting on behalf of the creditor, saying the last thing we want to have happen is for you to stop paying your rent. But there are some things you can do as a tenant before you're in that position. Problem is, once you're in it, you're in it. So you need to have thought about it before you got there, which is why we always recommend hire really good real estate legal expertise, not just lawyers. No disrespect to non-real estate lawyers, but 
Um, nothing is worse than when we have a client who says, yeah, my you know, friend who practices family law is going to <laughs> read our lease. It's like, please, God, no. Um, get a real estate attorney. Because there's some things you can put into your lease document that help prevent a situation where you have no rights. One of the concepts, and this is kind of a two-way street, so most sophisticated landlords want it as well as tenants. It's called an estoppel certificate. So if there's a change in control or a change in ownership of the asset, usually the tenants get a document that says, here, I want you to confirm that everything is hunky-dory and that you've got no issues. So you can hold out on signing the estoppel until they fix uh, or until you, you, they... you can't really hold up because as long as the landlord has made reasonable efforts to make you sign it, that you know, that really is what it is. But it's your, chance, it's, your, to... it's your chance to tell the future ownership or future controlling yeah. interest, here are my beefs with the current yes. landlord. Mm -hmm. And until you solve them or make the good faith es efforts to start the solving, I'm not going to agree that my lease is intact which is another way of saying, hey, I think that the landlord's in default, I want out. Mm -hmm. So and when a receiver is appointed, that is considered a change in control and they would need to distribute estoppels to their tenants? Typically, estoppel certificates would go out at that moment in time because the receiver wants to find out, a good receiver wants to know where are the bodies buried what's going on in addition to that they would use the stopple as a validation that yes i do have a lease in place and this is what i'm supposed to be doing on my end yeah because the two-way street is the receiver is getting appointed to ensure the health or the return of the finances to the creditor and they want to make sure if there's 10 tenants here how many of them are going to keep paying the rent because mm -hmm. if eight of them won't sign their estoppel certificates because they're going to say, Joe, the owner of the building was a jerk, and I, now that I know he's not here, I'm not going to pay anymore. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting document, but I would encourage any tenant out there, before you sign a lease, make sure that your lease says if there's going to be a change of control. Not only are you going to get a, an estoppel certificate, but you're going to have a window of time, 10, 14 business days, to actually think about it and respond to it. That's kind of crazy. I mean, do you think that this is going to... Because we are in a time period where there's a lot of speculation about buildings going into special servicing or, or receivership, but you have... I mean, you have some companies that are in... 80,000 square feet of space and their names are on the tops of these buildings, maybe the rest of the building is vacant. That could go into receivership, but they're locked into a 40-year lease or 20 year. Do you think we're going to start to see don't sign 40-year leases. Companies take <laughs> companies take News like alert. whole buildings so that that stuff doesn't happen so that they can be more in control of their destiny or larger companies even if they have a massive s footprint not committing for the term lengths that they used to commit to just so that if if the landlord goes bankrupt that they aren't stuck in a building with 20 percent of the elevators functioning i mean i've got a thought but i'll let you go well it's first of all this is not the first financial crisis that we're facing okay we've been through this before it really didn't affect things and change the behavior of tenants and what they're going to do. Um, yeah, but I think it, this is 
COVID, COVID where people didn't want to work, you know, the introduction now of a hybrid or remote compiled with the financial fallout from that. So I think it's compounding issues. It's not just a financial crisis. It's, there's been a shift in the way people work and now there's, that has in part helped add to the financial crisis that landlords face. It's added fuel to the real fire, which is that the ability to borrow money has changed drastically. Which and is really there's not that many this. people. There, there's no longer still the same demand for as much office space, too. Right. I think that that's the fuel. I think the real fire is that if you own a building today, your cost to borrow money compared to 12 months ago or 18 months ago has doubled. So. Your building could be 100% full. I mean, this happened to good friends and partners of mine. I mean, they had a portfolio of Class A office space in the Cleveland market that was 97% occupied, zero tenants in default. The savings and loan crisis hit. Borrowing rates went up. Their debt service their debt service coverage ratio changed. And their lender, who's not a good lender to be in partners with, said, you're in default. Game over. And took the buildings back. Um well, in a situation where the tenants were paying their rent, the landlord was doing what they were supposed to be doing, but the world outside changed. And I think what's looming on the horizon for the commercial real estate market is more indicative of the Fed and interest rates than it is a COVID issue. I think the COVID issue is specific to buildings, like one-off buildings, but the reality of interest rates changing and borrowing appetite changing because I think there's some lenders who are just like we're not lending we don't care like I don't care what the rate is I'm not going to lend on a commercial real estate asset um, I think that's really the fuel or I'm I, sorry, think, the I think lenders go through that yeah. you know that product type scenario all the time you know one minute you know, limited service hotels are the flavor of the month, and then it's full service hotels, and then it's downtown office buildings and AAA product and, you know, whatever. It's just the banks change their mind constantly about what is what is supposed to be filling up their portfolio. But Going back, back to the, oh, the, uh, the, the SNL turn. crisis, to me that was the, the, the most disastrous to the commercial real estate market because the banks that actually lended on these they, the banks were gone. They failed. Um, there was a time after deregulation where savings and loans were allowed to get into uh, provide mortgages for office buildings, and so they were literally giving away money. I don't mean it, you know, theoretically, but they were they were lending to everybody, Tom, Dick, and Harry, and it just created this incredible oversupply. And then to solve that, the government backed that, and they created. Do you remember the Re Resolution Trust Corporation? which was, I guess, as close to a government-funded receiver as you could get, they created this entity to dispose of the assets. And you had buildings that were 100% occupied, that the RTC was just basically, we've taken the property back, it's our property right now, we're just disposing of this. And you had also a lot of vacant properties too, tons of vacant properties, and they were giving away the property for 10 cents on the dollar. Yeah. I was going to say back to Paige's original question. I think the bigger tenant, or I should say the bigger the tenant, the more sophisticated the tenant in all likelihood. And I think that they've made a conscious choice, uh, you know, a strategic choice that 
is either I want to own my own real estate so that I can have control because of all of these potential risks, or they've decided I'm willing to understand the risks. I feel like I can protect myself against them, and I still want to be a tenant because I think that the risks of ownership are worse. And in those sophisticated tenants, 80,000 feet, 200,000 feet, whatever the case may be, they now have a lease document that gives them other tools on top of estoppel that make them feel like they're protected in a way that during the course of their occupancy, even if the lender, I'm sorry, even if the borrower, the landlord, um, loses his financial footing, that they're in a position that they can enforce and in some cases, um, you know, one of the concepts so is like a, a, a right to cure or a mm -hmm. self-help. Self-cure. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of tools out there that can force the landlord into default and then put the tenant in a position of having a lot more say in how things happen. And it's good to point out the size differential, too. If you're a 5,000-foot tenant, you're never going to be able to get a very attractive bankruptcy clause in your favor. Okay, if you're a hundred or a landlord for, default clause, or a landlord like. default clause, you're you're you're. Th these are the things. If you're if you're a single tenant, if you're if you're an Amazon taking down, you know, a huge uh, a huge warehouse, you're going to get every clause that you want for the most part. Yeah, I would say the bigger the tenant. So there's landlord default and tenant default. Um, we usually talk about tenant default. Yeah, and it's usually a much longer list in the lease. But if you're a really big tenant with a lot of sophistication, all of a sudden the lease looks a lot more fair. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of bullet points that say, hey, landlord, if you do X, Y, or Z, you're now in default. And now you as the tenant have the right to either cure, like I said, or walk. And if you've got the right to walk from your lease and the receiver knows that, the receiver is going to be extremely diligent about ensuring that you don't walk. And that he gets that building mm -hmm. out of default so that he still has the revenue from that tenant. Does that right. make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And who who are the people that become receivers? Are there like, you know, companies that that's, are there national brand, like national offices that are, you know, the the known people in the market to become receivers in the northeast and the south like yeah i don't i want to be agnostic to names because i don't want to give anybody props but like but is there are there on the special service yes. nationwide on the special servicer side of the world so the cmbs driven receivership process there are major companies with thousands of employees who that is their jam and they do it, and they do it really well. They do it all over the country, um, which is one of the risks as a tenant is if you're in a building that gets put into special servicing by a group that's not local to your market, you now have a problem because your special servicers, clearly not somebody you're having dinner with, clearly not somebody you know from the club, and clearly not somebody who understands your local market. So that creates friction. In um, the non-CMBS world, so the more local lender experience and especially in a town like Pittsburgh um, you have some uh, real estate professionals brokers agents and or real estate lawyers who have figured out you know what this is a really interesting niche I'm only going to do this I'm gonna become a receiver I'm gonna let 
every judge in town know that I am a receiver. And you start to get to a point where, you know, you become a one of very few people on a list of, hey, here's an office building in Pittsburgh. How many names are actual receivers? And it's a pretty short list. So mm-hmm. is it finance background people? Is it legal background people? Legal is background. it real estate background people? Okay. I actually think it can be. It could be all of the above. It depends on the asset, first of all. Okay, it depends on the location. Yeah, I understand know. their variables. I just wasn't sure. Like, I'd say legal yeah. first, real estate second, finance third. Yeah, and it's the uh, and it also goes back to the the person who can initiate the receivership is either the borrower and or the court. You can petition the court for a uh, a receivership, and it just it goes back to who's the the best one to solve that problem. Yeah, on the local level, on the non-CMBS thing, mm-hmm. I bet if you pulled the curtain behind the scenes, the receivers have a tendency to go to dinner with judges, go to cocktails and country clubs with judges, and they have insulated themselves into a really small um, network. No different than, you know, we've Anything created else, a niche yeah. for what yeah, we do, sure. and mm-hmm. they've created their niche, they get really good at it, and the judges know if we appoint... You know, John Smith. John Smith will get it taken care of for us. So it's a fascinating topic. We're certainly going to see a lot more of it. And you're going to see a lot more of it, as well as the parallel path to that would be bankruptcies also. Yeah. So if a, if a property gets bought out of receivership, does it still need to go before the court? And does it still go to an auction or no? Before the court, yes, but no auction. That's a really good question. Before I don't know the, court, the answer. Yes, no auction. Yeah, I yeah. think that the court can and the receiver can make that decision. They can make a unilateral decision. Yeah. Usually the court, that's, I mean, that's a really good question, not just on sale, but on decisions of should I pay the elevator bill or the gas bill? Mm-hmm. Should I renew a lease? Do I have any money to give the tenant for carpet or paint? Usually the court will say to the receiver, here are the 10 things you're allowed to do without coming to talk to me. And here's the list of things that you have to come talk to me about. And... You know, that list where the breaking point is on the bullets is also back to the tenant. Like, can I actually get a decision made by the guy who's in control of the building or do I have to wait for it to go in front of a judge? So um, I would say nine times out of ten, they have the ability to sell it at a certain price without the court's... I I think... That a sale has to be approved by the court, but it might not require a court judgment. Now, this we get into a legal aspect of something like but that. But it's not a thing where it goes to bid. No. Like a bankruptcy does. Like there's not like in a general. Yeah. thirty to forty-five day window where they have to open, like post yeah, a notice they would have of to a post hearing. It and, and, um, but you're saying that you don't do that yeah, with receivership. Yeah. Yeah. Receivers thing. usually have the ability to sell an asset at a certain number with the court's final blessing. And then somewhere below that number, the court can still agree to it, but the receiver's got to convince them to do it. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah. like a really sophisticated uh, real estate agent who is helping the court work through a whole bunch of complicated problems. Yeah, and it, you know a lot of this stuff goes back to the actual loan instrument, like the mortgage document, and those are incredibly complex there's documents. so much fun to read. Come on. Oh, yeah, they're the best. They're I don't, the best. I, I still haven't met someone who's actually read one. But. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've read mine word for word. But, Shout out to Alan. I bet Alan reads every word. 
I, I, I bet Alan does. <laughs> he probably finds typos. <laughs> but it also gives, it, it, there, there is incredible power in what the lending institution is allowed to do to increase the pressure to make you go someplace else. Right. You know, when you, get, when you get that notice that your loan is going into special servicing, that's literally, uh, I'm going to break up with you and it's going to be really ugly, so find a new girlfriend right now. Um, and guess what? Uh, it's already too late because I'm already yeah. in control. Well, a lot of times, typically we, when that's going on. And we uh, put it in the paper. No, <laughs> but when, okay, when you, but when you do the that, times, no. they're not doing it because right. times are good. They're doing it because times are bad. Right. You know, it used to be that every, you know, every time a loan would roll over, there was another 10 lenders ready to jump right in. But now it's, uh, you know, when you get a situation like this, no uh, commercial lender wants to be in the downtown CBD office space. space in the world right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing, and it does have that trickle down because at the end of the day, the tenant is the cash flow instrument, and the tenant is the one that's going to have all of their services gone. You know, at risk. So if you're a tenant, bottom line, and you're in a building that you find out is in or going into receivership, you might want to call somebody like a totem or your lawyer because there's lots lots to talk about. So I, I, I think oh. you I, I think you call both, but let me just add one thing. Like anything else, it's a disruption, and all disruptions are there is a risk, and there's a tremendous opportunity. And as long as you know the moving parts within it, that's where you can make the right decision. Yeah, I mean, I will end with you make a great point. If you're a tenant who is sophisticated and you're in a building where you have substantial clout, meaning i.e. you control <laughs> a lot of the revenue stream, and you become best friends with the receiver, you can probably create some serious leverage for your organization to ensure that the future of your home is protected and you're kind of in control, even though you're not in control. So um, with that, we've got to thank the Stums, Eddie um, and Leanne, for a fantastic bottle of bourbon. They brought it last week for a, mm -hmm. a company party, which we're so grateful to them and others who thought it would be fun to stock up the shelf. So what's the take, Vanna? Okay, well... Um I thought it was a little harsh at, when we first started. This is a... Smoky. Uh, harsh iron, is not the word I yeah, use. Yeah, iron smoke. This is a single barrel, special reserve. Um, it's uh, made with applewood smoked wheat mash. And um, and uh, I, I thought I think it opened up nicely. And unlike... Uh, I don't know where they got it. Uh, New York. I know, but how okay. did they get it? Like that? That's definitely not at the State Liquor Store. Yeah. I think this was probably a well, Didn't the Stums also give us the old soul, which none of us had ever seen either? But unlike Paige... Oh, and their son, who Absolutely. was down in uh, Mississippi. Unlike Paige, this is only two years old. Paige. Oh, that's a great birthday bond. But don't phone. I love it. We got to so, dig into that cake. I'm 22. I, I, I actually... Uh, I thought it was 21. Yeah, I liked it. 22 is more responsible. I'm going to go with that. Okay. It's worth well, at least another glass. So. Awesome. Iron smoke. Nice. Well, like us, love us, follow us on your uh, app of choosing. Happy birthday to Paige, even though she didn't partake in the bourbon today. No. She was a little, a little fearful of the. 
Uh, no, yeah. I'm, Bourbon wasn't feeling it today. I think there's just been maybe too much partaking of hard liquor lately. I needed to step it down for a few days. And remember, <laughs> tis, the se- tis the event season. Tis the event so. season. Get out there and do some BD. Um, That's all I have been doing. <laughs> so, again, reminder, if you notice what's different in the set, Send us a message. First one in gets the bottle of Buffalo Trace. And thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.